what's up everybody? Welcome to the weekly wildfire update. This is the Hotshot Wake Up. Busy, busy week. Region 4 has started. They are starting to see a little bit of weather roll into Utah at this point in time. The southwest monsoonal flow has found its way to southern Utah, but this moisture has not been seen in Nevada or Idaho yet. Southern California is burning, and even in the southeast, there are some fires. Also on today's show, we are going to talk about the new retirement legislation that passed the House just this week, all the details on that, the details on the housing issues that are happening with federal housing and the poor state of affairs that that is. There's some updates on that as well. We'll talk about the FBI implementing a a track and trace system on wildfires in California, specifically for pedestrian drones or personal drone use over fires. And the FBI is starting to become a partner with these fire agencies in California for these reasons and implementing a tracking technology within their IQS systems. And on top of all that, we have to talk about what is going on in the nation with the wildfires right now. So with that operational update nationally, we have moved up to a preparedness level three. That means we're more than halfway to the top, which is a planning level five. If region four continues and California continues, and as we'll talk about in a little bit, the Pacific Northwest is very hot and dry right now, and they are starting to put out warnings to all of their fire people. Maybe mid-August we will see this preparedness level nationally go up again. In total, across the nation, there were 214 new fires in the last 24 hours, four new large fires in Alaska, there was a fire in Florida that made this list, and there was a fire in Oklahoma that made the large fire list as well. Currently, 21 uncontained large fires in the nation, and 97 fires are being managed for resource benefit or fire use. Last week, this was still in the 60s. So we've seen a substantial increase in fires that are being managed across the nation. There are currently 12 type 1 and type 2 teams out and working. Region 4 up in Alaska and California. And like I said, it was a busy week. Starting up in Alaska, they are at a preparedness level 5 or a PL5. They had four new large lightning fires. They had quite the system of lightning come through this week. Tens of thousands of strikes across the state. 48 or 24 hours ago, Alaska was saying that they had six new starts. Four of them went large. And Alaska is still dealing with a bunch of logistical issues. Folks are telling me that some hotshot crews landed up there and they've been sitting since they've landed because there's no logistical way to move them around. I was told that a hotshot crew got flown into a fire and dropped off, but then none of their gear showed up, none of their tools showed up, no food showed up, and they were twiddling their thumbs in the middle of the wilderness. And just yesterday... 
five crews were ordered up to Alaska and then on their way to the airport, after purging their saws and packing their gear and getting ready to fly, they were all canceled. And then a couple dispatchers reached out to me and said that it wasn't necessarily because there's no work for them. It's because Alaska cannot logistically handle any more people coming up. It's a massive state. There's a lot of property up there. There's a lot of real estate in those wildernesses. And Alaska has finally hit the pause button on resources saying, hey, we can't handle any more folks coming up here. So pause it, cancel the orders. We're going to deal with what we got. The clear fire is the one that's been making the most headlines up there. This fire is 71,000 acres now, and they are calling it 49% contained. They did see some precipitation on this fire, and that has slowed the spread a little bit. They are moving into more of a monitor mode at this point in time with the 556 people that they have on this fire. They are saying that one structure was lost, and the current cost of that fire is $15.3 million. As we had talked about on the Wednesday show, there is a Space Force facility next to this fire in Anderson, Alaska. And some of you asked for more information on that, so here it is. It is called the Clear Space Force Station, and it is a United States Space Force radar station for detecting intercontinental ballistic missiles and submarine launch ballistic missiles. This base was originally set up for World War II, and they needed an airport up there in World War II. So where this base is currently located is in that footprint of the old World War II Army airfield. The original site where this Space Force facility is located was originally set up in 1918 for the Alaska Railroad. So there's some heavy-duty rail infrastructure running through this site all the way back to 1918. And the Department of the Interior in 1949 purchased this piece of land for their World War II Army aviation base. All the way back in 1958, when they decided to turn this into a more permanent facility, the estimated cost all the way back then was $800 million. In total, it's a 10 by 40 mile piece of property. So it's a massive, massive piece of property that they're operating up there. And as of recently, it has been turned into a Space Force facility. They had all sorts of contingency plans in case this clear fire turned around and started running at it. But it seems like that is no longer a danger. Also up in Alaska is the Dalton Highway Complex. Basically, everything's a complex in Alaska right now. That complex is 86,938 acres. There was some activity on these fires. I believe there's six fires in this complex. And it grew by 2,000 acres in the last 24 hours. They are saying, however, that the weather has moderated Fire activity has slowed quite a bit, and that one is at 91 people, and they don't have a cost reported on that. That is one of the newer complexes up in Alaska. The Lime Complex, which is the big one up there, 
has surpassed 865,000 acres. They have finally said there is some containment on this complex. It's been going for a very long time with 0% containment. And they are now saying 38% contained on this complex. There's 141 people on it and $10.4 million in cost. The other notable complex up in Alaska is the Bean Complex at 186,245 acres. That is 0% contained. There's 251 people on it, and the cost is $6.8 million. Now, we've already talked about some of the logistical issues happening up in Alaska. There are some other folks who have reached out to me saying that a bunch of near misses are going unreported, that fires and management teams aren't talking about that. I was sent some photos of a truck that a tree fell on on the clear fire, and the individual who sent me all of these things said they went into the safety zone when fire activity really picked up. There was kind of a back and forth of, hey, maybe we should get out of here because our egress might be cut off from the safety zone, and then we're really stuck here. And ultimately, the the decision was made to get out of there, and they made their way out, and on their way out, a tree fell over and landed on this truck. Now, I don't know if anything has changed since this information was sent to me, but as of my contact with these individuals, the fire management team hadn't really notified anybody on the fire that this had happened. There was no conversation with the operators about, hey, how did this happen? How can we rectify any of the costs at this point in time? And there was a lot of frustration on the side of the folks who sent all this information into me. There's a lot going on in Alaska. So, of course, there's going to be things falling through the cracks, but it sounds like crews are getting dropped off in the wilderness with no supplies or tools. People are landing in Alaska, and they are stuck there for a couple days with nowhere to go. Crews are getting canceled. And I think at this point in time, folks up there are just hoping it rains. Enough about Alaska. Moving on to the Great Basin. There was a ton of activity there. In the last 24 hours, there were 70 new fires in Region 4 or the Great Basin. They are at a PL3 currently. There's the Halfway Hill Fire that started in Fillmore, Utah. We talked about it again on the Wednesday show on Substack. There were some campers, four people in their young 30s that had a campfire and they left. And that is what started this fire. They have been charged for that. Right now, that fire is 11,637 acres and 10% contained. A total of 502 people are on that fire, a current cost of $3.2 million. Now, within the last day, there has been some weather that came through. There was some rain, there was some hail, and there is expected to be some weather moving in. And this is, again, that monsoonal flow coming up from the southwest. On the Halfway Hill Fire, there are 12 crews, 21 engines, and 6 helicopters. Also in Utah was the Jacob City Fire. This was just outside Stockton, Utah. That fire is 4,185 acres, 471 people, and that's 12 crews, 14 engines, and 7 helicopters. And the current cost is $4.5 million. 
They are saying it's 35% contained, and as well, the weather has moderated somewhat in that area. Now, how this one started. Originally, they said an individual bought a new generator and this thing exploded. And this individual went on local news and was crying and saying how horrible he felt. And oh my gosh, how could this ever happen to me? And since that report came out, he has been arrested. What the authorities are saying is he had a metal grinder or a circular grinder hooked up in an extension cord. The grinder's electrical cord had been cut and then spliced and then taped together. And that was plugged into this generator. And there was also a container of gasoline nearby. The story goes that this circular saw or the circular grinder overheated or got too hot to operate, which my guess is is when they rewired this thing and then put a bunch of tape around it, it wasn't a good connection. It started overheating. So the cops are saying that this individual set the grinder down and the heat of that somehow got into the gasoline. The gasoline canister exploded. The generator started on fire. The generator exploded. And then this fire happened. Kind of a mess with how that one all started, but crews seem to be getting a handle on that fire. Lastly, in the Great Basin is the Becky Peak Fire. This is near McGill, Nevada. It's just under 6,000 acres, and most of that fire was within the first 24 hours, about 4,200 acres ripped in 24 hours. Very fast, very windy, and it pushed this thing. Crews on that fire have reached 60% containment. There are currently 140 people on it. And now in the Great Basin, unless there's a bunch of new starts, they have a ton of personnel sitting in region on fires that are dying down that they need to find homes for at this point in time. Maybe you just plop them up on a ridge and leave them there for a while and keep these fires at that 70-80% contained for about a week and then start timing people out. Otherwise, you're going to need a bunch of new starts to find homes for these people. The southern area, Texas, Oklahoma, still burning. It seems to be burning every day. They're popping fires. Oklahoma had the Garland Trail Fire at 350 acres, a timber and grass fire that they said had short-duration crown runs through the timber, They wrapped that up pretty quick. In 24 hours, with a bunch of dozers, it looks like they are calling it 60% contained and only $17,000 in cost. And then in Texas, the notable one there is the Nethery Road Fire. That ripped 3,500 acres in a very short period of time. They are starting to get containment on that as well, and there's 70 people working that fire. Almost done. Moving to the Rocky Mountain area. That's a planning level two. They had the Monday Creek Fire in Wyoming, which was in the Medicine Bow National Forest. Super fast-moving fire, some rugged ground. That went 653 acres. They're saying there's 147 people working that fire up in Wyoming. And the cost of that is now $1.5 million dollars. Last but not least, the Northwest has started to heat up. It is dry now. The RHs have dropped significantly. 
And it is so bad that Oregon Public Broadcasting put out a large article and news piece saying, hey, even though there's not fires everywhere, fire season in the Northwest has begun and everybody needs to pay attention to that. Stay heads up because Oregon and Washington are ready to go. That's your operational update. Hey, thanks to all of our paid Substack subscribers. If you want to support the content and all of the firefighter donations that we do, the donations we give to family members in need, it's only $6 on our Substack for a subscription, and that goes towards all of these things. Couldn't do it without you. If you want to participate in that and support everything that we're doing here at the Hotshot Wake Up, you just go to Substack, the Hotshot Wake Up at Substack. All of the links are on my social media accounts. Click on subscribe, and it's just $6, and that will support everything we do. Again, cheers to everybody who is doing that. Again, we couldn't do it without you. So props to all of you. You're the reason everything that we do continues on. All right, we'll move on to the news. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, Cascade, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. There is another bill that is going through Congress that supports wildland firefighter retirement and other first responders' retirement and is actually a pretty big deal when you read the details of this whole thing. This bill was sponsored by John Tester of Montana. Now, Montana seems to be very proactive when it comes to these things. They're a big wildfire state. Missoula has the university. A bunch of smoke jumper bases there. Some of you know I did live in Montana. Grand total, probably about five and a half years I was in Montana on and off. I'd probably still be there, but life happens and some personal things came up in my life. Myself and an individual parted ways and I have since moved on from Montana. However, it is a great, great state. And their senator, John Tester introduced this bill dealing with retirement. Now, NBC News Montana put out the article on this, and this is what they have to say about the bill. Quote, the House of Representatives unanimously passed the first responders' fair return for employees on their initial retirement earned act. A lot of words there, but for short, it's just called the Retire Act. All in all, the act will help federal employees with their potentially dangerous jobs receive their full retirement benefits if they are injured while on duty. Now, Congress created an accelerated retirement system for these types of employees called 6C occupations, which then established a mandatory early retirement age of 57 years old. This caused employees to have a higher percentage of their wages go towards retirement and are entitled to an annuity after 20 years of service. As of now, however, if an employee is injured at work and unable to complete their mandatory years of service, 
funds already paid into early retirement are eliminated. That sounds like a horrible deal. Continuing, even if they return to federal government positions in a non-6C position, all funds put into their retirement disappear. Now, this First Responders Fair Retire Act will allow federal public safety officers to retain their 6C retirement status after returning to federal government work after being injured in the line of duty. They can still retire after 20 years of federal service and will still be eligible to receive a lump sum payment of the benefits owed out of their 6C retirement funds. John Tester of Montana had this to say, quote, Our first responders put themselves in harm's way to keep Montanans safe, and we owe them their full retirement benefits even if they are hurt on the job. This bipartisan legislation will help to make our first responders whole, and I'm looking forward to working with my colleagues in the Senate to get this bill across the finish line and signed into law. Now, this bill is backed by the National Federation for Federal Employees and the International Association of Firefighters, and its first big hurdle of getting through the House seems to have worked. Now on to the Senate. We'll see if that passes as well. But John Tester out of Montana is putting in some work to make this all happen. Now, the next big news to come out of This arena is, since we mentioned it, the National Federation of Federal Employees sent out another letter to the United States Department of Agriculture and the Department of the Interior, specifically talking about the housing issues in the wildfire world. In this letter, they laid out quite descriptively what the issues are the problems everybody's seen with the housing, and they compile the list of what their recommendations are. The NFFE had this to say in the letter, quote, in the short term, we have identified changes that the Forest Service can implement immediately to improve living conditions and aid in the recruitment for new employees. Now, I'm going to read these recommendations to you. There's a few of them, so hang in there, but they're good. Number one, they're saying, expedite repairs and upgrades for existing government housing, including adding simple amenities and new furnishings. Instruct forest supervisors to complete deferred maintenance by the end of the calendar year. Mandate that forest supervisors review and by default approve any reasonable request for maintenance with a priority to those repairs that impact hygiene, health, and safety of employees. So, if they take this recommendation up, sounds like if you put in a maintenance request, by default, they should be having to tackle that problem immediately. Two, listen to this one. Waive all rent payments from employees on government housing until issues are abated and housing is livable. Investigate with the inspector general... Any private housing providers who charge market or premium rates for substandard housing commit any violations of federal or local health or infestation regulations. I used to live in Forest Service housing back in the day, and all of these apply. Like, my rent would have been been waived in an instant. I would have had to have taken three pictures 
I didn't have any cell service because there was no phone service out there at the time. But we probably would have gone to our fax machine and faxed this in. That was the best way of communicating from this site. It was in the middle of nowhere. Number three, they say establish a housing stipend benefit and make it available to employees who do not live in Forest Service housing. So if you decide to not live in Forest Service housing, you should be getting a stipend. Four, lay down more trailer pads with full hookups on Forest Service property. Expedite the purchase of campers for employees who request them and put these into immediate use. Consult the Department of Interior on best practices and get their housing blueprints for permanent builds. National Park Service employees have A-frame cabins with a common room with a TV, a cookhouse, shared bathrooms, and private quarters. My Forest Service housing, when I lived in it, it was two people per room, communal kitchen, and locker room style bathrooms, and they, they were pretty bad. Number six, they say, identify all sites that have been deemed administrative sites and begin construction right away. Environmental impact assessments do not need to be completed on these sites, and new construction is subject only to public comment. That's pretty big because the environmental impact statements will slow down construction anywhere between three and five years. So getting rid of that will make the changes happen much, much quicker. Number seven, hire more forest engineers and facility staff to keep up with the regular upgrades and to build new buildings. Contractor construction and renovation maintenance is extremely expensive. Currently, some forests only have one person responsible for this work on the entire forest. That's a nightmare. Eight, condemn and bulldoze properties as necessary to eliminate safety risks and prepare for new permanent builds. This is serious stuff, folks. If, if you're not getting that, this is a massive move if this is implemented. It says, audit the QMQM fund where money employees pay in rent is held and redistribute these funds for maintenance. Ensure each region is allocating those resources fairly between forests and is making those funds available for promptly repairing and renovating existing housing. I would love to see the results of that audit. Where are all of the funds going that people are paying in rent? That's basically what they're asking. Hey, all of your rent money that you're collecting, it's supposed to be in this QMQM fund. Let us take a look at that fund and let's see if those monies are actually there. From there, it goes on asking for longer-term solutions, basically saying make housing available for everybody that wants it. It needs to be affordable for the wages that these people are being paid. There needs to be some sort of stability in this housing. So if you have a family, they're asking, hey, can there be some options where there are family units as well? And they want expanded options maximizing the employee's choice for housing. Saying, hey, we need more permanent structures, not just temporary or mobile structures, because these deteriorate quicker and end up costing more money. They want to eliminate barriers to housing based on an employee's gender or family status. So this means joint living. I'm sure there'll be some opinions on that one. 
I'll just let that one be for right now and see how that one turns out. And they want full-blown transparency on where all of the rent money is going and how that rent money is being spent. All in all, this letter was signed by Randy Irwin, the national president of the National Federation of Federal Employees, and there should have to be some sort of response from the Forest Service in a short period of time on all of these things. Again, this is a big, big deal. There's the retirement bill that's going through Congress right now, passed by the House, basically saying if you're injured on the job, but you come back not in fire, everything you paid in you get to keep, whereas of this point, that's not the case. And there's increased pressure on fixing this housing problem. So where do we go next? Well, we need to talk about these permanent wages and the increases in these wages that need to be permanent. Like I said all the way back in March, this Tim Hart Act seems to be getting pieced apart and individual items in the Tim Hart Act are being pushed. Some of it has started to go through, but the big one of a permanent pay increase is still on the table and no one has brought a finished piece of legislation on those pay increases to Congress at this point. Now, today I did get to hear a team meeting from Region 5 regarding the payments that have been going out, and they basically just reiterated, hey, we have money through about September of 2023, so they have money for these payments until almost the end of next fire season. At that point, it runs out. So that's, in my opinion, when it comes to government, that's right around the corner. There's an election in a couple months, which I've been saying is going to possibly throw a bunch of wrenches in all of this stuff because things are about to get really political. And in this team meeting, they also discussed the series, the new series that's coming out for firefighters, and they're saying that will not be finalized until early first quarter of 2023. Now, as we all know, hiring should be done by then, but the question now is, can they get all of that sorted out for people who apply for this new firefighter series? Is there going to be a bunch of hiring snafus in the early spring? and the late winter of 2023, because the folks in D.C. are saying, hey, right now, we don't think this will be finalized till at least mid-January of 2023. Another point out of that team meeting in Region 5 was, hey, the payments are coming, but the additional stipend payments of that six dollars or $700 that's supposed to be tacked on to everybody's paychecks there might be a couple-week delay on those, and you may see some paychecks in July without that extra money. But now they are saying, for sure, by late July or early August, everyone should be seeing those payments. But they said in this meeting, hey, we're just letting you know, don't freak out if your next paycheck, there's not extra money in it. I'm sure some people will see those funds, and I'm starting to think that some people won't, but we have to go with what they tell us, and that is 
by late July, if you haven't seen these extra payments, by late July, you should start seeing these. And by the latest August, they should be in your bank account. A lot of things happening on the legislative front in the wildfire world. Hopefully that caught up a lot of you with what's going on. And as always, I'll update everybody as I find out. But the most important thing moving forward now, because it looks like we're gaining traction on a lot of these things, is this permanent pay being implemented for the wildland firefighters across America. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, the Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. The FBI has come out and said, hey, wildfire world, we have something you may need. So the FBI has teamed up with some agencies, fire agencies out in California. And they are saying we have this technology which can track, trace, and determine who is using any drone that flies over your incident. Now, this is coming from the FBI's Weapons of Mass Destruction Unit, and they are saying they have this technology where they put this sensing array over your fire, some sort of radar system, and my guess is some sort of hacking system, where they explain that if a drone is seen over the fire, they can access that drone... They can get its trajectory data. They can trace back where it took off from. They can find out who the owner is, and they can get an exact GPS location of where the operator is standing. California was the first person to raise their hand and say, we want this technology on our wildfires, and they are starting to implement this. This is very, very powerful technology. I'm sure they use it over sporting events, large like political rallies. I'm sure that the FBI has implemented this technology as well. And basically, if you are flying any sort of personal drone over any type of high-profile event, most likely the FBI is tracking your drone system has your registration information. They know who you are and what type of location you are at, your exact location to be precise. And then themselves, the FBI probably has surveillance drones where they can then just zoom in on you and see exactly who you are and watch you operate your toy. Now, this is important on wildfires where... Drones are operating, especially in the early phases when there's a lot of activity. Once you spot a drone, all aircraft have to be grounded. Aerial operations cease. And it becomes a total and complete mess. After the fact, when someone calls on the radio and says, I see a drone. I was on a fire with my crew and I called in a drone that was flying over this canyon where we were 
constructing indirect line, and they were backing our indirect line with large tankers with retardant drops. Someone on the crew said, hey, I think I see a drone. So I spun around, took a look, grabbed some binos, and sure enough, there was a drone hovering over our line construction. I ended up calling this in to the fire. They ended up passing it on to dispatch. All aviation was grounded. And then I dealt with this drone sighting for the next six and a half months. So long after the fire ended, I was contacted by the FAA, and they had all sorts of questions for me. Where do I think the drone operator was? What kind of drone was it? Can you look at drone pictures on Amazon and tell us what kind of drone you think it was? So you give them all the information that you have, and then a sheriff's deputy calls you and says, hey, I'm the active investigator on this, and... I want all of this information as well. Hey, can I get your personal telephone number? Can I get your work telephone number? Give me all of your personal information because this is an ongoing investigation and you are the point of contact. Then sometime months later, these two entities called me and contacted me again and they started sending me a bunch of YouTube videos of drone footage that was taken near and around these fires and they wanted me to pinpoint if any of the footage that I saw was of where I was working and if it was close enough to it and if I thought any of this footage happened to be from the drone that I had called in. Point being, it's a giant, giant mess when you have to call in a drone sighting over a wildfire. The hope by the FBI in California is that this will deter people from doing that. Right now, it's a $20,000 fine and possible jail time if you operate a drone over a wildfire. So if they can pinpoint who you are and send agents to your location within minutes of you launching your drone... I'm sure if they can get a couple high-profile cases, they will deter folks from flying these things over wildfires quite a bit. Now, off of this story, there was another story about aerial ignition drones this week as well. This was in Yahoo News, and they were saying that there's an increased use of aerial firing operations from these quadcopters or these four propeller drones that have somewhat heavy lift capability where they can start dropping these ping pong balls instead of using helicopter platforms to do this work. The article was saying that 24 people in the United States are currently being trained for aerial ignition drone operation. I'm sure that will increase as the years go on, and it's very apparent to me now that at least when it comes to aerial ignition, drones are slowly becoming the norm. They're becoming very, very popular with fire managers, and they can say that this takes away the risk from the helicopter pilots and that machinery when it comes to things like prescribed burning and aerial ignitions. Now, I know there's a lot of pilots out there that 
bank on these prescribed burns and aerial ignitions with the PSD machines to bank some extra hours, bank some flight time, and earn a little bit of money. Sorry to say they are taking your jobs. I see this probably advancing further in the next year or two where they will have drone platforms just for overseeing the fire at nighttime. I think that's where they'll start with it, is they'll start nighttime drone operations. First for Intel, maybe as a mobile repeater, some IR flights, maybe they'll start doing IR flights at night with drones instead of fixed-wing platforms. And all in all, I just see this increasing as time goes on. Another quick thing I'll touch on before we wrap this show up. Over in Europe, there has been increased wildfire activity. It is their fire season, and we are seeing wildfires in Portugal, Spain, France. Greece has seen some fires. Tragically, there was an aviation accident a couple days ago. This was with an MI-8 Soviet helicopter that was doing bucket drops. And they ran into some trouble when they were out over the sea trying to load and return. Two of the crew members were found alive and two were found deceased. But what I'm saying is, Europe is seeing some increased fire activity. And someone reached out to me and said, I posted some footage of a French engine company that was pumping and rolling on a wildfire over there. And they kind of got into a hairy situation. I wouldn't say it was like imminently death, you know? It wasn't that bad. But they got themselves in a sticky situation on a road. And they ended up having fire on both sides of the road. And someone reached out, hey, why don't they just back off and light this thing off? Well, the answer to that is Europe is anti-firing. They don't like firing operations. They are of the mindset of, hey, there's already fire on the ground. We're going to cause more problems if we put fire on the ground. It's also a training thing. Like, they don't do a lot of prescribed burning over there, so they don't put a lot of fire on the ground. And their people aren't trained even in the simplest tools that we have, such as a drip torch or a fusee or a, a berry pistol. They don't have this training for these things. So that's why they don't back off to a road and fire it off. And whenever we see footage of folks over in Europe, it just seems super gunny. They're in their trucks right next to the flaming front trying to stop this thing with a hose. And a lot of the times it looks like it's just a helpless effort to combat these wildfires. That is slowly changing, very slowly. Just last month, Germany had a bunch of wildfires traveling through their forests. There was a big munitions depot that was threatened on a railway line. And there was concern that if it got to this railway, you'd have all of these munitions start to explode. So for the first time in history, Germany fired off a road or fired off some some hand line or something. They had a control line in place They gathered up some drip torches, and they lit it off. It was the first time in history that they did a firing operation over there. The good news out of all of that is it was very, very successful, 
and they were able to stop the fire with this firing operation. So maybe as they go forward, we will see more types of these operations over in Europe, and they will start combating some of the wildfires they have with fire. If you look at some of the images that have come out of like Croatia and places like that, these are just really tightly packed mountainside communities on, on a coastline with just vegetation everywhere. And I think if you had some sort of off-season prescribed burning in these areas, you could minimize a lot of that. Croatia lost a lot of homes with their fire that they had over the last 24 hours. And I think there's a lot to be shared there. There is the organization Veterans in Fire they have gone over to Europe and they have worked with these folks to try to teach them how this all works over in the United States. And I think that's a very good exchange program that they have. You'd love to see that continue. And I'm sure there's a lot of you out there who would love to join in these exchange programs. I know folks who have gone over to Australia to help them. I know folks who have gone to Israel to help them. I have a buddy who went to Portugal years back to get that experience with what their wildfire seasons are like. And I've also had buddies do roles down in Puerto Rico helping with that. Now, I've never done fire down in Puerto Rico. I have parked on the side of a roadway in Puerto Rico and watched a wildfire as a Type 2IA crew down there tried to wrangle this thing in. And it looked a lot like a lot of fun. And once it died down, I just went back to the ocean and ate a bunch of seafood and rice and had myself a rum and pineapple and thought, I'd like to do a tour down here. That would be nice. Well, the Jumpers have had an exchange program down there and other folks have had those opportunities as well. But to answer your questions, that's why Europe isn't hauling around drip torches and ripping off roadways is because it's a massive taboo over there. They're scared of it. They don't want it to happen. They think it will only cause problems. So they haven't implemented that tool in their arsenal. Hey, before we go, again, thank you to all the paid Substack subscribers. If you go to Substack, the hotshot wake up over on Substack, if you want to support everything we do, like I said, the donations that we give out to firefighters in need, their families, it seems that one of these things come up about every two weeks, and we post that and donate to these causes. We are 100% ad-free, and again, we wouldn't be able to do this podcast or maintain any of our social media without those Substack subscribers. So if you want to support the content, Head over to Substack, just $6 if you click subscribe, and that helps everything we do. If you can't do that, just give the podcast a like on the Substack, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, leave a review, and that helps as well. Again, cheers to everyone who subscribes on our Substack. That wraps up your weekly wildfire update. I'm sure it's going to be a busy weekend. The Great Basin has fire weather predicted through the weekend. California is supposed to be heating up. As we said, the Pacific Northwest is heating up as well. So if you get some time, reach out, check in with your homies, see how they're doing. 
get some quality calories in you, hydrate, make sure to stretch, and ultimately when you get up, you got to get it done. Uh-huh.